0: Glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. All right, now, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Ever since I started this new process with Restream, I always forget about having to start the audio with the podcast, but we'll figure it out. Maybe one of these days I'll get it where I just do it all on the computer, but right now it's easier for me on my phone with the podcast. I can transfer it between phones and easy to upload, so I'm all about easy. So let's see what we can do today. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, I just entitled this The Fear of God. And it's very interesting. So far in uh Ecclesiastes, well, not so far, the majority of Ecclesiastes has been Solomon looking at this idea of the meaning of life under the sun in the sense of looking at only life and trying to find value and meaning and worth in life apart from the idea of God on the other side of the equation, and that's the under the sun aspect of it. He's, he's really pressing home a point for us to get us to think about life and help us come to the understanding that there is no value, there is no purpose, there is no meaning in life apart from God. If all we have is what is under the sun, there is no God, then it is, as he uh says many times uh, vanity right Hebel is vanity it 's meaningless it 's like you know trying to grasp the wind it 's like shadow boxing, uh, if you will, but there have been occasions in Ecclesiastes where Solomon has given us some foreshadowing as it relates to what his ultimate conclusion is. And we know, just from the things that he's mentioned already about God, that Solomon is not an atheist. Kohelet, the preacher, is not an atheist. He is just trying to get us to think about life and the meaning of life and come to the conclusion that he comes to, that there really is no meaning apart from God. So the ultimate answer is there God. And so in this These seven verses, he he gives us a vivid picture of his conclusion that the only way we find true meaning in life is because there is a God. And then he talks a lot about the issue of worship. In this particular section of Ecclesiastes, so we're 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 just under halfway through. There's 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes. We're in the first part of chapter five, so just just about halfway or just under halfway, he gives us this very powerful picture that hey, I believe in God, and uh, I believe that we ought to worship God, and that we ought to come to God and worship Him in a particular uh, kind of kind of way. And so that's kind of the the way we're going to go at this uh, tonight. We're just going to take it one phrase at a time, one verse at a time, and talk just a little bit about each one of those phrases as he unpacks this. So the first thing that Solomon uh, challenges his hearers to do. That group, you know, and coheleth has to do with the idea of the assembler. So the one who has assembled people together to teach them. So the preacher assembling his congregation is teaching them. And the first thing he exhorts them to do is to guard their steps. If you're following, following along in your Bible or on your digital device, you see the first uh, verse says, Guard your steps. When you go to the house of the Lord. And again, we can't, you can't get away from this in the Bible. I don't understand how people can even come to the conclusion that there is a theological basis for the idea that a person can say that they are a follower of Christ, they are a Christian, they're a believer in God. And then they can they can live however they want to live, uh, apart from any idea that Jesus ought to have lordship in their life. He ought to be control or master over their life and the things they do. That their salvation doesn't necessarily impact um, the way that they live. When in in, in point of fact, it is completely the opposite, um, because it is a radical change. A person comes from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. That is a radical change in a person's life, and it impacts their status. We are new creations, the Bible says, and so there is this idea that it ought to impact the way that we live. We ought to live in light of the, the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us As believers uh, in God. And so Solomon says, really, as you're going to the house of the Lord, guard your steps. That's the implication is that we ought to live in a particular way as those who claim to be uh, followers of God, especially as we prepare to worship God and to enter into the presence of God. Uh, Our lives ought, ought to exhibit the holiness and righteous character of God. And I get it, not perfectly, because none of us are perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, this side of the return of Christ, because we still carry this flesh with us. But we ought to, the bent of our life ought to be to walk and live in a particular way um, that honors the righteousness that God has imputed to us, that honors the character of holiness uh, that God is. After all, Peter reminds us, be holy for I am holy, the Lord says. But the other side of this is as we enter into the house of the Lord, we ought to guard our steps in this way of how we approach the presence of God. Because, you know, all the way from the Old Testament, God's purpose and plan with humanity is to be among his people, He to be their God, we to be his people, and he to be among his people, right We see that in the Garden of Eden, God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and eve that was the that was one of the uh intents of that paradise with Adam and Eve there, and God communing with them in that paradise in that perfect perfect place. And we know how that all got messed up. And then while God couldn't be in that perfect place, in that perfect communion with them after the fall, later on we see this hint of that same truth in the tabernacle in the wilderness. God tells uh, Moses and Moses relays it to Israel that the tabernacle, the holy place, the holy of holies above the cherubim on the mercy seat, that is where God would meet with his people it, it, they called it the, the meeting place right the, the the tent of the presence of God and so it represented that idea God with his people right and although veiled and not perfectly um, accessible because there were particular places and only particular people could go but it still represented that the seed of that idea that that thought uh, that that purpose and plan of God and then we see it later on with Jesus when he comes you know John 1, 1 14 we're we're in the, going through the gospel of John on in Friendship Baptist Church on Sunday mornings we've already done the prologue and in verse 14 it tells us that the word the logos became flesh and pitched his tent he tabernacled uh, among us and so again his name Emmanuel God with us that same idea that same thought that God wants to be with his people and then we see it a little bit later on when Jesus ascends into heaven he sends the helper and the helper comes and he indwells us and then we learn later on from Paul and others that we are the temple of God so it's God in us Christ in us right Uh, that is our our hope and so we still see that the that implication of God's purpose in us in that way. And then in Revelation we get a glimpse of what the full completion of that will be when the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem comes down as God, as a bride ordained for her husband. And God once and for all, for all of eternity, will be with His people. He will be our God. We will be His people, and He'll be will be in His presence for all of eternity in the new heaven and the new earth united in that way so that that's god's intent for us to come into his presence and one of the ways that we experience that in a corporate way uh, in uh in christianity is we come together in local bodies of believers where we corporately gather together to worship god and the worship of god one of the primary aspects of it is to come into the presence uh, of god And so, you know, I was thinking about this when Solomon says, guard your steps when you come into the house of the Lord. How flippantly do we walk into the presence of the Lord today? How unguarded are our steps as we walk into the presence of the Lord today? There is this loss of the sense of awe and reverence of God when we come together for corporate worship. I get it. We are his friends, Jesus said. He calls us friends. We are sons and daughters. We can say Abba Father to him and have that personal, intimate relationship with God. But there is this aspect of the Father that we need to remember. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, how does he start? Hallowed be thy name, right? We need to remember that when we come into the presence of God, we are coming into the sovereign, transcendent creator of this universe. He is holy in in other words, completely other, in that there's nothing like him. We're not like him. There's no being on, on planet Earth that is like him. He is holy and sanctified. And just and righteous, and it is he is rightly to be feared, as Solomon says in Proverbs, "The fear of the Lord, it ultimately leads us to a right understanding of who he is and a right reverence of who he is, and a right understanding of how we ought to come into the presence of the lord and we We ought to bring some of that back into our worship today, understanding like God told Moses. Hey, remove your shoes for you are on holy ground. Where was Moses at? He was in the middle of the desert. He was in in the middle of a sand uh, pit, right? With, With a bush that was on fire. Nothing special about the sand. Nothing special about the bush. What was special was the one who was there in the midst of all of that. And that made it holy ground. And we got to think that same way when we come into the presence of the Lord. Think about how John in Revelation, when he encounters the risen Lord, what does he do? He falls down like a dead man, right? You know, I love the song, love the movie. We've all seen it, we've all sung it, uh, or at least, you know, attempted to sing it. Uh, I can only imagine you know i can only imagine what i will do when i when i see the lord right will i will i dance will i sing will it, whatever Well, I know one thing that everybody I see do in the book of Revelation that encounters the Lord, they fall down before the Lord on their faces to worship him. We got to have that same kind of sense and awe and, and wonder about God when we come into his presence. And we need to begin to instill that once again in the next generation as we lead them in this aspect of how we come together and worship the Lord. So we have so distorted worship in a, in our american christian modern american christian culture and we need we need to get back to some of the reverence and the awe that we had of God in years gone by and solomon i think reminds us of that when he tells us to guard our step don't flippantly run into the the presence of almighty god and then the next thing he says is open your ears when you come into the presence of the Lord, when you come into this place of corporate worship, there ought, to be, there ought to be this aspect of an anticipation to hear from God. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. While the sacrificial system was important and it had its place Uh, and it was a constant reminder and foreshadowing of who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do, the Lord, you you could offer a thousand sacrifices, but if that didn't ever impact and and change the way you live because of who God was and what you heard of God and heard from God in his word, then it was was worship that was faulty uh, at best. And so one of the things I think the preacher is reminding us of, and this again is something else that we have forgotten in our modern Christian culture of worship in, <clears throat> in America. Cohila, the preacher is reminding us that ultimately the climax of our worship is to experience and hear God, to be in his presence and to hear from him. And the primary way that we hear from him today is we hear from God through his word. I understand the Holy Spirit, the still, small voice, Uh, in our lives, but what does the Holy Spirit do? What is his role and responsibility? We learn from the scripture that he is to convict men of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. And he's to say and teach the things that Jesus said and taught. And he is to um, use the truth of God's word to bring about sanctification in our life. He's to lead us into all truth. And Jesus reminds us that the word of God is truth. So in in our day, we primarily hear uh, from God, through his word, and I've probably quoted this uh, many times before, and I'll quote it many times again, but I think it's Alistair Begg who says this. If you want to hear from God, then read his word because he's revealed himself to us in his word. Ultimately, in the greatest way in Jesus Christ, but how do we learn about Jesus Christ? We hear it, and we read about it, and we read about him from the word of God. And Alistair Begg says, if you want to hear, hear God audibly, then read the Bible out loud. God primarily speaks to us through his word. And I think one of the things that we need to be reminded of in worship in light of this idea of, hey, open our ears, anticipate hearing from God, is that the climax of worship ought to be the proclamation of God's word. And we've kind of, we've kind of turned that up on his head today in our uh, society, haven't we? We ought to have a balance Yes, we we have come to this conclusion. It, even in the way that we, even in the way that we say it nowadays, right? The way we say it nowadays is we're going to have we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna worship, and then we'll have a sermon, right? That's the kind of the way we do it, right? Who's leading in worship, and then who's going to be giving us the sermon? And we have we have made this false, you know, dichotomy between worship and the sermon. We we're almost saying like the worship part of what we do is all about the music and the sermon is just something we have to put on the end and we endure until the end, right? And hopefully it's a really uh, short and sweet and pithy. And when we're sitting there and the sermon's going on, if it's not a good motivational, encouraging speech that makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside, uh, we're already thinking about what's in the crock pot or what we're, we're going to go to eat or, or whatever, and so we have relegated the sermon to something, you know, that is really insignificant. The most significant part of what we call worship today, we relegate to the music. And again, not not beating up on the mu- musical aspect of it, man, if you read the Psalms, the whole... Book of Psalms is a song book to be used in worship, and so over and over again we learn that we need to come before the Lord singing and praising and giving thank giving thanks and making a joyful noise uh, before the Lord. And so we ought part of our worship ought to be singing, but we need to also understand that. Part of our worship is to hear from God, from his word. Uh, and, and that's the ultimate, that's where, that's where the singing ought to lead us to, the climax of understanding who God is and what he's done from his word. And we have, we have turned that up on his head uh, today. And so if we're going to come to worship, the preacher here, Koheleth, Solomon, is telling us, well, we need we need to come into the presence of God in a in an appropriate way. We need to guard our steps, and then we need to have our ears attuned to hear from God in this worth worship experience. And then another aspect of worship that we see in here is the idea of our communicating uh, with God, responding to what we hear about who God is and and what God has done. So He reminds us that hey. We need to guard our mouths. We need to be careful how we respond to God and what we say uh, to God. Listen listen to what he says in verses 2 and 3. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice. With many words well we we all probably know somebody that fits that last description, right uh, someone who has um uh, well, not to be too crude, but diarrhea of the mouth right they they just love to to talk and they say nothing when they talk like a dream you're you're in the middle of a dream and it's really busy and and uh It may even seem real to you and may even make you tired when you go through the process of dreaming, but it's all in in the imagination, right? It's not reality to it uh so the greater implication of this is we need to be careful how we respond to god and he's going to speak in just a moment about the issue of vows and and you know promises that we make uh to god and these all kind of go hand in hand but you know i thought it'd be it'd be worth a moment or two for us to think about this idea of uh guarding our mouths and being not being rash with the things that we say because we can be so flippant with the things we say right And so, this is still in the context of worship, and and it's a word that is being said before the Lord, so in the context of worship, we ought to be careful about how we use our words, how we address God, and the things that we, uh, the vows we make to God, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment, but uh, a couple verses came to mind when I was thinking about this, on how... um, how important it is for us to guard our mouths, to guard our word. Now we can go to James and those kind of places where it talks about the tongue and the danger of the tongue and the power of the tongue and how we ought, you know, we ought to be careful with it. We ought to listen, you know, twice as much as we speak. Uh, the implication is from from James. But listen to Matthew chapter twelve, verses thirty-six and thirty-seven. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Well, that's powerful, isn't it? You can stop at verse 36, and that's enough for us to chew on and ponder uh, for quite some time, because I think every time I read that verse, I think, man, how many careless words have I ever said in my life, period, and how many careless words have I ever said to God uh, in prayer, or how many careless promises have I made to God, and you know, we all do that, right, not to get ahead of myself, but we all do that to God, right, make really promises that we have no intention of of keeping, but we're going to be judged, even down to every careless word that we say. And he goes on, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be uh, condemned because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? And so it's an indication of, you know, the condition of your heart, the things you say and the things you do. So we need to be careful with the words that we say and the using of our words, especially as it relates to our communicating and making promises To the Lord. Listen to Psalm 141, 1 through 3. It's a psalm of David. It says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Listen to verse 3 powerful. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. May that be our prayer to the Lord. Because, hey, as a human being, we can we can say the most ridiculous things, the most hateful things, the most hurtful things, the most flippant things with this little bitty uh, muscle that's in our mouth and a little bit of air that comes out of our lungs. And we can form into words things that are vile, things that are false, things that are flippant. And so, hey, even James says, hey, if a man can bridle his tongue, he can bridle his whole body, right? That's how difficult it is to control the tongue. So, Lord, set a centurion up. Put an angel on guard for my lips and my mouth and my tongue and have him lock it down if it doesn't need to come out of my brain and into the air that's around me. I need the Lord's help to guard my mouth and to guard my tongue, especially when I'm about to say something uh, to Him. Listen to Matthew fifteen seven through nine. You hypocrites! Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? This is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, "This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me." teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. How many times have you come into worship and you've given God lip service? You you, you, you go through the motions, right? You sing the songs, but you don't mean them. <clears throat> uh, maybe you're not even thinking about what the words mean when you're singing them. You're just singing them because you already have them memorized because you've sung them so often. And you're not thinking about the Lord. You're not thinking about honoring the Lord with those songs. Maybe you're even thinking about something else while you're in beta mode, and your and your brain is in, and and mouth is just automatically spitting out the words. <clears throat> How many times have you we come to worship that way, where we just give God lip service? Well, that's false worship. That's hypocritical worship. And we need to guard our hearts, and guard our mind, and guard our mouths, and guard our steps as we come into the presence of the Lord. Uh, To worship, We need to come to worship meaning what we are saying to the Lord, meaning what it is that we're trying to convey as our love for him and the worth that is due to him. And if we make promises to him, make them promises that are valid promises that we are willing uh, to keep before the Lord. And look, he tells us that one of the reasons we ought to do this is, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And I couldn't help but think of Isaiah chapter 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And, And I mean, we need to understand that. We don't see the big picture. We don't understand everything that's going on. God's ways are higher. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't have all the information. God has all the information. God understands everything. So we need to be careful, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of trial and tribulation and pain and suffering in our life. A lot of times, those are the times when we make these flippant statements to God out of desperation. And sometimes it's blaming God or accusing God. Uh, Sometimes it's trying to bargain with God to make vows that we never intended uh, to keep in the first place. So we need to understand, if we don't know how to pray, if we don't know what to pray, then sometimes the best thing to do is just read scripture and say, Lord, here's what your word says. I'm, I'm standing on your word, Lord, here's what your word says. Sometimes just sit and be silent. And listen for the Lord. The Bible tells us, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, that even when we don't know how to pray, that the Holy Spirit prays for us in groans and utterings that we don't even understand. So, trust the Lord in that way. You don't have to always, uh, you know, fill the air with the sound of your voice. And I don't always have to fill the air with the sound of my voice just so we can say that we said something to God. Sometimes maybe it's just reading His Word and silently anticipating to hear from the Lord. Then the next section, the last section is honor your word. So, so far we've had guard your steps as you come into the house of the Lord, as you prepare for worship, open your ears as you come into this place of worship before the Lord, guard your mouth as you worship the Lord, and then finally honor your word. If you do make a vow to God, then by golly, Do what it is that you've promised the Lord. Listen to what he says. I'm just going to read verses 4 through 7, then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit. It says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Far, uh, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. And so, backing up to, to verse 4. Hey, when you vow a vow to God, don't delay in paying that vow. And again, that goes back to the flippant vows that we make sometimes. You know, how many times when you get in the midst of a crisis, you say, Lord, I you know, I I did this thing again, and I'm in a mess, I'm in a bind, and if you will just help me get out of this mess or get out of this bind, I'll never do that thing again, right? Well, that's a vow to the Lord. And then what do you know? The next thing you know, you get out of that situation, and then just a little bit later down the road, you're right back in the mess again because you're doing the same thing again. You didn't honor your vow to the Lord. I'm reminded of Martin Luther. And part of his story is he was going to be a lawyer and uh, he was uh, caught in a thunderstorm uh, coming home one evening, and as he's running through this field, lightning and thunders crashing around him, and he's so terrified, and he falls to the ground, and he says to the Lord, Lord, if you will save me from this moment, if you'll not let me die in this moment, I will give myself to the monkery, (laughs) all right? Uh, He'll become a priest, and when it was over, that's exactly what he did. He he became a priest, so if you're going to make a vow, honor that vow. In uh, relating to the flippant aspect of vows and promises we make to the Lord, I couldn't help but think of Jephthah in the Old Testament, in the in the book of Judges. Uh, he was one of the judges that uh, the Lord raised up to help Israel in a time of their sinfulness when they were being overrun by. Uh, other uh peoples. And Jephthah was he was a unscrupulous guy for the most part, but he was still used by God in this particular area. But one of the things Jephthah did whenever he was leaving to go into battle, uh to deal with this situation, he made a vow to the Lord. He says, Lord, if you'll help us in this battle, when I come back, the first thing that comes out of the door of my house I will offer it to you as a sacrifice. Well, he went to battle. God, God honored them and God fought with them and they overcome their their foe and they came back. And as they were coming back and Jephthah was coming up to his home, uh, the first person that came out of his house was his daughter. You know what Jephthah did? Jephthah honors, honored his vow to the Lord. It's amazing to me. We need to be careful. That, that wasn't what his intent was for that vow. And sometimes we make vows that we don't think through. We make promises that we don't think through. And as the Lord's already said earlier in this chapter, sometimes it's better not to say what anything or make a promise or make a vow uh, than to open your mouth and say something that you will regret later and not follow through with it later. If you make a vow to the Lord, honor the vow that you've made to the Lord. It's better not to make a vow. Uh, and not have to keep it than to make one that you didn't, you never intended to keep or you didn't think through well enough to understand the difficulties of keeping uh, that particular vow. And then he goes on to verse 6, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Wow, you know, you stop right there and preach a whole sermon. How many times has your mouth and my mouth led us into sin? Again, it goes back to the economy of our words, right? <clears throat> we need to think before we speak. And he, he goes on to say something in this passage that we see all the time, we may do all the time, right? Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. You know, how many times, you know, the first thing I thought about is when you're kids, right? And you you might say a a, a curse word, you know, something, some prof, use profanity. And the first thing you're going to say when your parents catch you up in it, uh, if you've got godly Christian parents who don't abide those kinds of things, you're going to say, I'm sorry, it was a mistake, I didn't mean to do it. Well, it's absolutely incorrect because you did mean to do it because you had a choice. You could have not said it and you chose to go ahead and say it because it comes through your brain before it comes out your out your mouth and so it's not it's not a it may be a mistake in the sense that you shouldn't have done it but it's not uh, a mistake in that you didn't mean to say it because you meant to say it if you said it it came out right because you thought about it before you said it and i get it sometimes we say things in the heat of the moment without thinking it through properly and whatever is in our brain comes right out of our mouth and that gets us in trouble and leads us into sin and so so frustrating to me and of course today when it comes to profanity there are so many believers people who call themselves Christians today that profanity is speaking in a profane way is uh, is not even a big deal anymore right and i get it there's plenty of people who make the argument that hey you know who's to say what is you know profanity anyway because what may be profanity in one culture is not profanity in another culture and I get it right they are words that you know British people will say for them that are uh, curse words and for us it just sounds like another word it's not necessarily a cuss word but you know most of the time we understand enough about that culture to pick up on those kinds of things and the same thing with Spanish or whatever they may cuss words that we won't even understand what they are when they say them because they're in a foreign language right but here's the real- reality of the Of the fact, I think, at least this is my argument to that there's no doubt in American culture exactly what we understand as profane and uh, uh crass uh, words uh, as a matter of fact, there are many people you know there are many words that you can 't say on radio and used to be some you couldn 't say on television, but that 's gone away now but the the point of the matter is those things are uh those things are profane, right? And why would we as Christians want to mimic the culture that's around us and use the profane words that the culture uses anyway? And, you know, abstain from all appearance of evil. And in our culture, that is an appearance of evil, using profane language. And I get it. it, it you know, only thing that, you know, if, if you're offended by things, it's only because you allow things to offend you, Right. Uh, but I think using our language in a profane way is ultimately an offense to God. Uh, it goes all the way back to the you know the first four commandments, commandments about, about honoring God as God, having no other gods before Him. Don't make any any, any graven images. Uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Right. How do we take the Lord's name in that vein? It's not just saying the GD cuss word. That, I think that's part of it. But it goes beyond that. We we take the Lord's name in vain. The idea is bearing up the Lord's name. So what do we claim to do when we're Christians? We bear up the name of the Lord. Right? He's our banner. We walk under the name of Jesus Christ, and then we speak as though we are pagans in the world. In that sense, we are bearing the we are taking up the Lord's name in vain. We claim to be one thing, and then we are speaking as though we are something else. And so. You know, I think profanity ought not be part of the vocabulary of those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And I get it. There are people on the other side that argue against that. But I think it's uh, more prudent biblically to understand that profanity. Speaking profanely is a disgrace uh, to the person and the character of God, and so it saddens me when we have Christians who really know that in their heart right if you watch a lot of these TV uh, talk show hosts or or Christian conservative uh, news personalities and they they will say the curse words, right? You know, really, really profane cuss words that we, uh, you know, you wouldn't use normally nowadays. <laughs> there used to be a time you wouldn't do that in mixed company, right? If there were ladies in the room, men wouldn't use those vulgar kind of cuss words. But now the ladies are using them as well, so it really don't matter. But you'll see these people when they use this profane language, and then they'll say, you know, you know, forgive me, or or, or pardon me, or I'm sorry, but, right? No you're not sorry I and mean, it's not you're not really asking for forgiveness you chose to speak that way because you think that speaking that way in some way enhances your argument and you, know, you think that vulgar adjective in some way in enhances uh, the dialogue but really it dumbs the dialogue down uh, because using profanity is a way to illustrate that you don't have a robust enough vocabulary uh, to be able to describe the things you're describing without reverting back to profane language. But anyway, I'll get off of that topic and and move on. But there's something to be said about how we speak. And it's not just profanity. It's ultimately how we speak to one another and how we speak to uh, God. And so let us not let our mouths lead us in to sin. And he goes on to say that there's some there's something about our language and the way we use our language that leads to sin and that leads to ultimately the anger of God and the judgment of God on the works of the people who use their mouth, use their language to cause them to sin. And then he rounds this out in verse 7 for when dreams increase and words grow many there is vanity and again you know this this is a refrain he said earlier kind of uh in 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 uh, the previous sections of this cha- uh, this these verses but we've all seen those kind of people right there's a lot of vanity and a lot of words. We need to use an economy of words, right? You know there there was this commercial some maybe most most of the people probably listen to this are old enough to to remember this. Or some some if you're younger you, you have no idea what I'm about to say. But when E. F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Well what was the implication of that commercial? Is that when he speaks, he really has something to say because he don't just speak flippantly and and speak all the time, and so people listen because he has something to say when he says it, you know he's thought it through well that's the way we ought to be with with our words, and then uh the last part of this, but God is the one you must fear in that one in that one phrase Kohelet, the preacher, Solomon has given us. His conclusion. He's really brought us to chapter twelve already. He's foreshadowed exactly what he's going to come to. So it validates this argument that I've been making that what Solomon is really doing, what the preacher here is really doing, is not just merely looking at life under the sun. He's he's framing his argument in that way as a thought experiment to get us to understand that. There is no hope if we just do life under the sun apart from the reality of God. But the ultimate conclusion he comes to and the ultimate conclusion he's driving us to is... That life only has meaning and only has value and only has worth if we understand that it is God that we are to live for and honor in everything that we do. And so that's why he concludes this verse with, but God is the one you must fear. Listen, listen to Ecclesiastes 12.13 when he comes to the real conclusion at the end. He says, the end of the matter. Right? That sounds pretty definitive, right? All has been heard. In other words, he's gone through all of these experiments we've been going through, and we still have some to go through. But he says, after all of this thought process, after all of this experiment of doing life under the sun, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Here's his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's, that's where he's driving us, right, so now you know the end of the story, but hang on as we go through the rest of the journey, but you need to you and I need to live in light of this truth right now. It is God we must fear, it is God we must honor, it is God we must reverence with every aspect of our life, and we're talking about that on Thursdays as we go through family driven faith, right? We have lost that idea in Christianity, at least in in American Christianity, it seems. Uh, that we 've lost that idea that Christianity has become something that we do do along with all the other things that we do it it is another category in our life and so what we do is we have a shelf of categories in our life and we compartmentalize those categories in our life and so we put one category uh, of our one compartment on the shelf and we take another one down so and sometimes we may have one or two together but we have our career as a category and during the week we focus in on our career and we got the category of family that we bring down during that week time for small portions of time that we try to deal with it and then we have this category of entertainment this category of education and this you know category of sports or whatever it may be and then also along that shelf is another category of christianity and so what we do is on sundays we take that christianity category down if we're if we're actually you know trying to to adhere to it at all we'll take that category of christianity down whenever it 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 appeals to us or whenever it's convenient for us and we'll grow Grab that little canister, that category of Christianity, and we'll take it with us as we go to church. And of course, today, nowadays, uh, you know, a study I read not too long ago says that most people think that, hey, if I go to church, you know, once a month, I consider myself a regular attender, or maybe, you know, I'm really good if I go twice a month, and people think they're regular attenders, and that they're good, uh, you know, uh, wholesome Christians if I just come to worship twice a month, and so we'll pull that category down, and we'll take it whatever feels convenient for us at the moment, and we'll we'll go worship, and then once we get done, we put that back up, Right. Now, if, if that category conflicts with the category of sports for our kids, then, well, we've got to leave Christianity on, on the shelf on corporate worship day, right, on Sunday, the Lord's Day. We'll leave it on the shelf and we'll take down sports because we've come to believe in our society that, hey, if I can help little Johnny become the best baseball player he could ever be, And if that and that will get him access to the best colleges that he may be able to go to, and it'll get him the best kind of education that he can go to, or maybe the ultimate goal is to get him into the major leagues or whatever. And you plug any sport you want to in there, baseball, football, soccer, whatever it is, plug it in. If I can do that for Johnny, then that's the most important thing I need to do for Johnny, right? And so we'll put Christianity up there because sometimes that baseball or those sports, it needs to happen on Sunday morning when we ought to be going to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. And so we'll take that little box of sports down and say, okay, today we're going to go do this for you, Johnny, because this is really the most important thing in your life. When we get time, we'll, we'll do the Christian Christianity thing. When we get time... Uh, we'll do that, but right now we're going to focus on this. And so, see, we've lost that, and even in Christian families today, we think that all those other things are so important, right? And again, I love sports. played Played sports, played football, but you got you and I got to come back to the place where we understand that the single, solitary, imp- most important thing that we can do for our family is to center our lives around who we are in Jesus Christ. That must take precedence. That must take priority. Everything else that we are must be centered and governed by who we are in Jesus Christ. And dads and moms, you've got to come to the conclusion that you understand that the most important thing you can do for your child is to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. And let me tell you, that is more than taking them to a church occasionally on Sunday morning or maybe on Wednesday night. That is you taking the reins of discipleship over your children in your home every single day of the week and teaching them what it means to be a follower of Christ and modeling for them what it means to be a follower of Christ and letting them see that you make decisions for your life and for your family because of who you are in Christ. And that that takes priority in your life. And all these other categories come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then they have their proper perspective in your life. And so we've got to get back to that that in American Christianity today. But sadly, what we want in Christianity, for the most part, is entertainment and uh, pithy, you know... um, happy little sermonettes that make us feel real good, rather than ultimately deep diving into God's Word and understanding who He is and what He's done and how that impacts my daily life for living for Him. But anyway, uh, I can't make that happen in your life. That's something God's got to do for you. But if you want to begin to get a taste of that, then I'd ask you to join us at Friendship Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Alabama, where our focus is to get back to uh, the important issue of teaching dads and teaching moms how to take the reins of discipleship for their children in their home. And then we model that in the church uh, as well. So anyway, uh, hope this was a blessing for you. Uh, Thursday, Lord willing, we'll continue our journey into the second uh, part of Family Driven Faith. And then uh, next Sunday, we'll pick up in Verse 8 on Ecclesiastes. So until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.